Let's take, uh, let's take the Bibles, uh, our Bibles together. Our uh, Bible text for today is uh, Genesis chapter 29, 1 through 30. You're going to find that in the, if you use the church Bible, page 23. Page 23 in the church Bible, 1 through 30 of chapter 29 of Genesis. So give a moment for you to turn there or flip in your phone or whatever you're doing to find the, the word. All right, let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and, and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Vilha to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban 
for another seven years. This is the word of God. I need to pray, and I think you do too. We ask the Lord to speak to us. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you. We've already spoken. Um, Father, uh, we need a special measure of grace now that your spirit would apply this truth to our minds and our hearts. We're asking for special grace for ourselves as hearers that we would hear from you. Lord, I need an extra measure of grace so that I speak only what is helpful and uh, useful and honoring to the Lord Jesus in all of this. So guide my thoughts and words. Uh, Give us all um, understanding from your spirit. And may you do that work in us that only you can do by your spirit when your word is proclaimed. Sanctify us in this truth. Your word is truth. In all of this, Father, may your Son, our Savior Jesus, be glorified. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, every time I, I read this story, I always find it uh, amusing. A man had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel because she was beautiful. Le- Leah, we're told, this older sister was not beautiful because she had weak eyes. So on the, the night of the wedding, Laban does the big switcheroo, right? We see that. And uh, Jacob consummates the marriage. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, I'm always asking my question, and and I put the question to you. Who had weak eyes? Really? I mean, we we think, how did this go down? How did this happen this way? Of course, I'm I'm looking at the story through a kind of a modern lens, because we know that this could not happen in a tradition uh, of weddings today. Right? It couldn't happen. And the, scenar- the scenario is only amusing if I don't understand how a heavily veiled bride would not be recognizable to a groom. And not to mention the fact that my, my whole punchline fundamentally misunderstands what is meant by, by weak eyes. But be that as it may, what I'm aiming at here this morning is that while jo- Jacob was, was chosen by God, he was assured of divine blessing, his life would be marked by experiences that are common to all. And I want to talk about this this morning. The longings, the the labors, and the lessons that are part of life for everyone who is called a child of God. So I'm going to stick with my own misunderstanding of weak eyes this morning, just, just to make a larger point about Jacob. I maintain that Jacob did have weak eyes. Not in his inability to recognize Leah over Rachel, no. But really in the sense that he, like all of us, have have an inability to see how God blesses his own. Even when in the moment, it doesn't seem like it. So as we look at this story, I want to consider this this bigger picture of how a, a child of God sees with the eyes of faith through, and this is my outline, our longings, through lessons, and through labors. How we see with the eyes of faith through our longings and the lessons and the labors. So first of all, longings, the longings. Uh, Since um, 
uh, years ago, sensing uh, a call to pastoral ministry, and this was with the affirmation of the church where I grew up, I began my seminary training. And I, I longed to serve the Lord there at that church long term. But it wasn't meant to be. That was my longing. Uh, I was told by a, a well-meaning uh, elder, uh, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own country. And if you recognize that, that's what uh, Jesus said about his own ministry. And he, and he stated it as a lament. And this elder was stating it to me like this is how it ought to be. But, so I didn't last very long there. Um, they basically told me you won't grow in your ministry here. And that longing was, was kind of dashed. Well, the previous church where I served, this was back in Waterdown, Ontario. So there's more than, wow, I've been here almost 18 years. So before that, uh, it was a new church plant. Uh, it was uh, planted out of a, a larger, well-established church in an adjacent city. And I was recruited to be part of the, that team, um, provide some leadership in its startup. At the beginning of that ministry, it started really as a satellite of the the, the mother church, uh, but the intent was to move towards independence. And, uh, and I was told as they recruited me that I would eventually find myself in a, in a lead role there. Well, the church grew so quickly and I fulfilled my duties of finding, building an elder team and establishing kind of a music ministry, but it grew quickly. And uh, the mother church at kind of at the end said, well, you know, it's kind of like beyond you. So we'll find somebody else. And, and that was a, a gut punch, to be honest. Now, I don't, I look back in that, and while in the moment those were disappointing times because my longings were not met, I see how God has worked in them. In retrospect, I can see this was good. I mean, I get the blessing of being, being here among you. Maybe you've experienced this as you've grown in your faith and you've desired to serve the Lord. You've had an idea in your mind, a kind of a, a picture of what that would look like, your, your longings. Well, Jacob was on a mission. In the, in the previous section, his father had told him to leave and go to Haran and find a wife among his relatives because he was living among Canaanites and there was no suitable wife there. And along the way, Jacob had this amazing encounter with God in a dream. And he was assured by the Lord directly of blessing and posterity, children. And since it was given to him to find his own wife, Unlike his father Isaac, I, can't, I don't doubt he had some kind of picture in mind. And why would he not conclude that the Lord would give him success, right? Why would he not conclude that, that his future wife would be more than one who would simply bear children, but that she would also be a beautiful, lifelong companion? So he had been directed by the Lord, first by his father's command, but certainly affirmed by the Lord he now finds himself to this area, this region of Paddan Aram. That's a city near, uh, near the, uh, sorry, it's a region near the city that was named for Abraham's uncle, Haran. So he finds himself at this well, success. He then happens upon that well, and those that are using that well are none other than the servants of Laban, his mother's brother, success. Then one of Laban's daughters shows up with the sheep that she is tending. And Jacob's told, oh, that's, that's Rachel. That's one of Laban's daughters. Success, right? Verse 10, 
As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. As we move through that, as I read it, it, perhaps you, you got the sense that, well, Jacob was wondering, why aren't you watering the sheep and just saying them on their way? We got to wait till everybody arrives. Because I'm guessing that what is implied here is that the, the stone is too much for one guy to move. And so they all arrive, they move the huge stone, all the sheep are watered and they go on their way. But what does Jacob do? He moves it himself, right? And no doubt this impressed Rachel. And I think at this point, uh, Jacob is now suddenly smitten with Rachel. Look at verse 11. Now this comes out of nowhere. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's, kin, her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, it seems a little improper to me. <laughs> he kissed her. He wept aloud. I'm, I'm guessing he's weeping for joy. But be that as it may, Rachel doesn't rebuff Jacob. No, she runs and tells her father. So Jacob's found his relatives. He's impressed the shepherds. He's impressed Rachel. He thinks she's beautiful. And Rachel runs to tell her father. Success, right? This, this is going great. He then stays with the family for a month. Now Jacob's got a problem, right? He's come with nothing. He loves Rachel. He's got no money. Nothing for a bride price. Now on the other hand, Laban knows that he's got this hard worker with Jacob. And he wants to keep him around. So he says to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Well, Jacob sees that, of course, as his opportunity, right? Again, verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The, the name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Success, right? It's a, this is going well. Seven years, and we're told in the text, seven years for Rachel seemed like a very small price to pay. And, and of course, here we find out that why Jacob prefers Rachel. And we're told here Leah's eyes are weak. Uh, literally, it's tender. Her eyes are tender. And that doesn't mean that she couldn't see but what is implied is that something about her was not attractive. It could have also been a demeanor, right? That she was weighed down. Perhaps she was a kind of a depressed personality. Sad. Now, that's speculative, I realize. But, but when you look later on when she bears children, in each child she bears, she is lamenting in the naming of her children uh, her own relief from affliction and rejection. So that's built in. So Leah has weak eyes. Maybe she's weak in demeanor. Maybe she's unattractive. We don't know. But whatever, Jacob does not prefer her. The thing is, Jacob wants Rachel, and Laban agrees. And right now, everything's looking up for Jacob. It tells us verse 20, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Success. Blue skies smiling at me, nothing but blue. 
Skies do I see bluebirds singing a song, nothing but bluebirds all day long. Never saw the sun shining so bright. Never saw things go, oh, so right. Well, he had no idea about Frank Sinatra or Willie Nelson, but whatever. He was probably singing something like that, right? Well, we know how the story turns out, right? It seems to me that if, if you just put yourself in Jacob's shoes or his sandals at this point, it seems like Jacob's deepest longings, his righteous longings, they're being satisfied. And for him, God's will has lined up with Jacob's plans. Now, of course, we know how the story turns out. And that is part of God's will, too. And what God wills, what God ordains, is good. But I contend that Jacob had weak eyes. At this point, he cannot fully grasp how God is going to accomplish his purposes. Now, if we pause here, that is true for you and me. We must keep in mind that God has plans and purposes that may be and often are different than our expectations. Now, maybe you're this morning, you're in a place where God has provided for you just like you expected. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, hold loosely to the good things that God has given. Just as we think about where we are in this nation, we have enjoyed great freedom, haven't we? We have been free to meet like this, free to stand for the truth of the Bible without fear, right? We have been free to steward our time, our abilities and resources that God has entrusted to us. We've been free to do that for kingdom purposes. And if or when those are taken away, we must not conclude that God has withdrawn his blessing. Now, some, some, knew, some here know, already know. You know what it's like when your deepest longings are not met. I'm sure all of us have those moments that we can think about. Your dream job or assignment went to someone else. Or maybe your investment in that business opportunity was absolutely wiped out. Maybe you experienced unfaithfulness in your marriage. Your husband or wife died way too young. The child was stillborn. Grief multiplied. Your loved one diagnosed with cancer. You can think of a thousand ways life didn't work out like you thought it would. You set out to serve the Lord, but you got the gut punch. We have to take comfort in what the Lord declared through the prophet Isaiah. Hear this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When things don't turn out like we hoped, when our deepest longings are not met, I know the temptation would be to conclude that God is somehow being capricious. Don't forget that the greatest blessings, they're not 
temporal, but they're eternal. They are eternal. They are forever. So child of God, know this. Ephesians 1, fix this in your mind. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So brothers and sisters in Christ, our deepest longings, they've got to be fixed on things that are not temporary and perishing. Those things could go away. They have to be fixed on that which is eternal. So, Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Long for what is eternal. The second, the lesson. The lesson. I have a, a very vivid memory uh, of a car trip with my parents to Florida. I think I was nine or ten years old. We left early on a, on a March Saturday morning, and it had just begun to snow. So leaving from where we were in southern Ontario, by the time we had passed a city called London on our way towards Windsor, that's been in the news lately, but we were in the path of a huge lake effect snowstorm that was coming off of uh, uh, Lake Huron. And the snow was, was wet and slushy, and it really piled up very quickly on the roads. A ton of cars had just spun out into the ditch, and it soon felt like we were in that same death spiral spinning around the road, and we likewise ended in a ditch, skidding down a, an embankment. It was a gentle embankment. We were fine, but we were stuck, along with a lot of other cars. Now, this, this memory is so vivid for me because I remember seeing... Um, a car go by us, and it was a very distinctive car because it had been like one of those hot rod cars all souped up, and, and the occupants of the car had their windows down, honking the horn, waving at us and yelling kind of mockingly, ah, you're in the ditch, you know, and they didn't say that, but it just felt like, oh, they were, they were just mocking us because, well, my dad lost control of the car in, in the ditch, us and hundreds of others. Well, it took a few hours, a tow truck got us out. And as we're traveling down the road, we're about 10 miles down the road. We saw that same car in the ditch. And I remember I felt strangely satisfied. Probably not a righteous feeling, right? They'd experienced the very same thing that they mocked us for. Now, some people call it poetic justice. Hindus and Buddhists call it karma. Philosophers simply call it cause and effect. But listen, there is no independent force or fate. There is only God who governs over all creation. And this is what God says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Now, that doesn't mean that every stupid, careless, and sinful thing that we ever do will come back on our own heads. But what it does mean is that in an ultimate sense, 
If you sow in pride for your entire life, you will reap condemnation. But there's good news as well. See, if you truly belong to the Lord, he will not let your pride remain. Because he opposes the proud. So he doesn't want you to be proud. He will humble you. He wants your humility. Because God gives grace to the humble. And listen, when he humbles his own, it is an act of grace. Now, Jacob, in our story, has been blessed. But we got to remember how he got to this point. And nothing in this story or in the previous section gives us any evidence that Jacob had engaged in some sort of self-reflection, right? What did he do? He maneuvered his brother and he deceived his father. Remember, Jacob received his birthright by tricking his brother or just exploiting his brother's uh, hunger. And he got the, the blessing from his father by deceiving him into thinking he was his older brother. So to this point in his life, he has truly lived up to his name. Jacob, meaning one who grabs the heel. That is to say, one who supplants another by deception. So back to our story. Jacob has served Laban for seven years, and things have been going swimmingly for him. And now it's time. He's gonna, everything's going great. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and, and made a feast. <laughs> and you can imagine this. All this anticipation on Jacob's part, seven years of laboring for Laban. Now the text says it just went by so fast because he was just so smitten with, with Rachel. Big celebration. Everyone's there for the feast, the food, the drink, the vows. Everything's going right. Seven years seems like nothing. But in the evening, he, verse 23, Laban, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Now, it, it seems to me that uh, Laban knows that his daughter Leah, that her prospects are not great. So he does that switcheroo, right? And of course, Jacob is oblivious. I take it that Leah is heavily veiled through the celebration. There's likely no conversation between her and Jacob. So he's completely unsuspecting. He simply assumes that it will be Rachel. And the marriage is consummated. No going back. In the morning, it was Leah. Irrevocable. Jacob's marriage to Leah is now permanent. It had been consummated. Now, at this point, I wonder if, if Jacob is drawn back to the time his father told Esau, after Jacob's deception, I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Here now, Jacob demands an explanation from Laban. Can't imagine how that made Leah feel. Laban falls back on tradition. Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Jacob was so fixated on Rachel that he didn't pay attention to the customs. Jacob got the advantage over his brother Esau, who was so fixated on his hunger that he sold his birthright. 
See the similarity, I think. Jacob's been with Laban seven years and a month. And in all that time, he never thought to inquire about the local customs. Now, of course, Laban's not guiltless in this episode, but this isn't about Laban. Jacob needed to learn a lesson. He needed to understand that God has no place for pride and deception. Now, we might be tempted to look at this like it's some sort of poetic justice or karma, but God is in charge here. God is for Jacob. He's for him. He is for his good. And God has determined to discipline Jacob by subjecting to the very same experience of his own sin caused to others. It's not punishment. It's grace. It's not punishment. It's grace. As William Coper, the hymn writer, wrote, Maybe you're familiar with these words. It's beautiful. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Know this, God disciplines his own. He only disciplines his own. He judges his enemies. He judges those who are not his own, but he disciplines his own. Discipline has a corrective purpose. So Christian brothers and sisters, as the writer of Hebrews exhorts us, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Rhetorical. There's none. So if you belong to the Lord, he will subject you to pain, disappointment, rejection, disease, grief, and any suffering he deems necessary to purge you and me of selfishness, of greed, of idolatry, of lust, of pride, and whatever, whatever evil craving we are prone to act upon. And he will do it for the sake of your soul. That's grace. That's the smile behind the frowning providence. I'm not saying that we can look at situations and know, know in the moment what sort of suffering is for discipline or correction. Or simply something given to us to form in us godliness. We don't know. We can't judge the moments. But listen, when suffering does come in whatever form, and it will come, come humbly before the Lord. Come humbly before the Lord and beg him to make you more like Jesus as a result of it. I can't think of anything else to do. You will be weeping at the grave of a loved one. And the weeping is fine. The weeping is, is appropriate. But in the midst of your grief, 
Say, God, make me more like Jesus. That's what you do with that. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Well, finally, the labor. This happens to me more than I like to count, but maybe you've been in the situation where you've invested hours, maybe weeks in a, in a project, only to see it all just fall apart. And then you're sitting there going, why did I even bother? Why did I even bother? I just, th I think one moment, which is not one of my best moments, but to save money, I once tried to replace the screening on my patio door. Now, if you've ever tried to replace screens in the frame, they give you this little, this kind of bead and you get this kind of pizza roller wheel and you put the screen there and you kind of, it, it's, it's hard to do. I laid this thing out on my deck and for hours I spent trying to stretch the screen, putting it in, it was all wobbly and, and at the end of it, my screen was so turned, uh, the, the whole screen door was so out of shape, it wouldn't even fit in the track anymore. Pulled out the thing, put it in again and at the end, I, I kind of, well, like I said, it wasn't a, wasn't a fine moment. I kind of got angry at the thing and just bent it into a bunch of million little pieces and threw it away. So why did I bother with that? happens. Like sometimes labor is very satisfying because you stand back and you go, huh, that, that worked out well. Other times you go, I it just, it was for nothing. Jacob showed up in Haran with nothing more than the Lord's promise to bless him. He had nothing in his hands, no possessions, no wealth, nothing to give as a bride price. And for, for his part, Laban sees this man who could be a benefit to his enterprise Jacob names his bride price. We've been through this seven years of labor for Rachel and then the switch. But Jacob still wants Rachel. And Laban offers up this plan for Jacob. He tells him, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for seven, uh, serving me se another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban, Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And after this week of celebration for his marriage to Leah, he takes Rachel and his wife as a wife in exchange for seven more years of labor. Now, it just it's worth noting, we're not going to deal with this today, but in the context of these two marriages, we're told that Laban gives Zilpah to Leah, Bilhah to Rachel as maidservants. And this will matter later in the next section because both will become Jacob's concubines and bear him children as well. Back to the story. Seven years of delightful work for Rachel, then seven more years of what seems like absolutely pointless labor. The seven years, the first seven years were for Rachel. The next seven years for, were for a wife that he never wanted. It seemed, I think it would have seemed pointless. Jacob has a wife he loves and another that is a constant reminder that he was duped. So the question is, Jacob blessed, uh, is Jacob blessed or not? And I, I, I suspect in the moment that he might not have felt so blessed. See, his complaining to Laban demonstrated his weak eyes, his, his inability to see, that, uh, see how God would ultimately bless him. His longings were not met in the way that he expected. He was taught a painful lesson, and he'd now given 14 years of his life to Laban with no prospect of independence. Is this his lot? Of course, the story's not over, right? God will fulfill his promise. God blessed Jacob. God told him he would prosper him and give him 
give him numerous offspring. But the Lord did not tell him how that would happen, right? The Lord did not tell him the details. He was chosen by God, and along with that blessing was the necessity of labor. Jacob, by his own testimony and by the witness of Scripture, lived a hard life. Just look ahead. We will get to these. There will be rivalry between his wives. That can't be pleasant. Rachel will be barren for a time. There will be more conflict with Laban. There will be fear from his brother Esau. There will be the rape of his daughter. There will be the defiling of Bilhah by his oldest son, Reuben. There will be the untimely death of Rachel. There will be the death, or so he thought, of his son, Joseph. There will be a famine in the land that will drive them to Egypt. Jacob's own testimony about his life is that he saw it as difficult. Now we fast forward to the end of Genesis when Jacob was questioned by Pharaoh. He described his life this way. Listen, he tells this to Pharaoh. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Few and evil. Yet, he was blessed. So if you're a child of God this morning, you are blessed. If you've put your faith in Christ, if you've trusted him, that his death at the cross took all of your sin, if you know that in his dying and then rising again, you have the absolute guarantee of a new body and, and the, the, the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you of eternal fellowship with God in a body, with his body, in the company of all God's people. You are blessed. You are blessed. But that does not mean that until Christ returns that it will be all butterflies and sunshine. Jesus said this to his disciples. In the world, you will have tribulation. So sometimes, oftentimes, life will be hard labor. And, and we get it. I, I think you get it. It's simply the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve passed on to every subsequent generation. Jacob labored because of his own sin. Jacob labored because of the sin of Laban. Jacob labored because there was sin in the world. Jacob labored because God told Adam after he took of the fruit, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat of the fruit of the land all the days of your life. Labor. Tribulation. Today, believers in Ukraine feel uncertain Believers in China and North Korea and Iran and Nigeria and Pakistan, they fear for their lives. But they are blessed. And whatever you may experience in your life, if you've put your faith in Jesus, his antidote to, tri to tribulation in the world is our comfort. Remember he said, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has, has overcome the world. He has overcome the world by dying in our place. He has defeated death. By rising from the grave, he has crushed the serpent and the power of sin over us. 
Having ascended to the Father's right hand, he is now interceding for you and for me and for all who have trusted him. He is interceding for us to guide us and sanctify us while we are in these mortal bodies until such a time when he ushers us through the veil of death into his glorious presence. So brothers and sisters, keep laboring even when it's hard, even though our days are few and evil. And take the apostles' exhortation to heart because Jesus died for your sins and rose to give you eternal life. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. You will labor. Life is labor. Life is tribulation. Jesus has overcome the world, but in the Lord, it's not wasted. Jacob's seven years of extra work for Rachel, when he thought he had her in the first place, was not wasted. And you may be in the middle of something that just feels absolutely pointless. In Christ, your labor is not in vain. Hold on to that hope. So we don't need to have weak eyes, right? So look up. Open your hearts and your eyes and see beyond the here and now. Fix your gaze on the hereafter. Let your ultimate longings be for where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Receive the lessons of discipline as God's grace to conform you to the image of the Son of God. And know, and know that as you keep your gaze on Christ, your labor will not be in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of us in this room have at times felt the disappointment of our longings not being met. You have, by your grace, given us important lessons for our own sanctification. And frankly, sometimes life just seems hard. Teach us, Father, by the example of your word, by the truth of your word. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And now, Father, because he is seated at your right hand in glory, we have an advocate, and we can now labor with our eyes fixed on Jesus, knowing that it is not in vain. So, God, Strengthen us for the journey. And may we, in all that we do, individually and together as a church, bring glory to Jesus as we await for his glorious return. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.